couple, just a couple updates as we um, before we get to the lecture material today. Um, one thing, exam next week on Tuesday. Um, please come on time. Don't come late. Uh, if you come after the first person is left, you will not be allowed to take the exam. So I suggest you come and be here at the start of class. That's probably in your best interest anyway. The exam will be approximately 60 multiple choice questions um, or multiple guest questions, depending on how well you know the material. And um, it'll, be uh, it'll be worth the number of points total that are on the syllabus. Uh, a couple other little things. Uh, a couple people have asked me um, several different times as I review the material, what should I focus on or what's most important? Uh, the answer to that is pretty simple. Everything is important. Everything that I've talked about in an online lecture or in the classroom is fair game for the exam. Uh, if I didn't talk about it in the online lecture or in the class lecture, and for instance, if you have the book and it's in the book, don't worry about it because I'm not going to test over it. It's only what I've lectured over. Um, a couple other little housekeeping things there. Certainly, if you're staying ahead or staying up on the, the stuff on WebCT, you'll probably notice that some of the dates are wrong on the quizzes, and essentially I'm having to reset each of those as I go. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't had a big enough block of time yet to sit down and reset them all. So like the, I think the stuff that's up right and due right now is muscle physiology. Obviously, I'll be extending that because we won't be doing that lecture for another two weeks. Um, just a couple other things. Uh, I would like to be available at some point before Tuesday to answer any questions that you may have. And I think uh, keeping in mind um, your schedules and my schedule, that one of the easiest ways to do that is going to be uh, to use WebCT. And uh, what I will do is I'll put a link on the WebCT homepage sometime before this happens. And uh, you'll be able to click on the link. And when you click on the link, it's going to check some things on your computer. And then it's going to take you into a chat room. And the way that we'll handle it is uh, make sure that you have some audio, the ability to at least listen to audio on the computer you're on. So if you use a computer lab computer, make sure you bring some headphones with you. And uh, there's, a, a, there's a way that you can text and then um, you can listen to a response. So essentially, I'll log in at around uh, 2 o'clock on Thursday. And um, I'll, I'll make an announcement about this on WebCT, so you don't have to write this down right now. But I'll log in around 2 o'clock. Anyone that has any questions over any of the material we've talked about, or if you just want to listen, you can log on as well. Uh, you can text, the text your question to me, and then I'll try to explain it uh, by speaking it. And then after we get done, for those of you who um, I realize that may not be a convenient time in your schedule, or you're just interested to hear what, what I said, um, I'll actually get that audio as well, and I'll, I'll put that up on um, the uh, iTunes download for you to, to get as well. And so that'll be the main way I'll handle any questions you have. I'm obviously not intend I have no intention of doing a review. So if you show up and say, "Tell me everything that you know about bioenergetics," I'm not going to do that. So if you if you come to that, come with some specific questions. That that's probably the best way that I can help you at this point. Um, uh, uh, somebody else, I think, in an email asked what the general format of the questions would be. And the, the questions would be similar to the questions that I showed the last time before the lecture started. So we'll have some more of those questions here in just a moment. But they're questions that are going to require you to take the information you've hopefully learned 
and apply that to a situation. And if you look at an ALBA questions on the exam, there's probably, there's usually about 10 to 15% of the questions that you could get right if you just memorize everything I've talked about. And so if you can just memorize all that stuff and regurgitate it, you'll get 15% of the questions right. If you don't learn the material in such a way that you can actually use it to respond to a question, then uh, you probably won't fare so well on the exam. And again, you know, it's really important you understand the material. And as we've gone along, hopefully it's been fairly obvious that the material in each subsequent lecture has required you to understand the material from the previous lecture. So if there's something that you're not understanding, please ask as soon as you have the question because uh, that will just prevent you from not understanding later, something later on. The other thing I can tell you is when we get to the exam, take your time taking the exam. You have the full 90 minutes if you need it to take the exam. I suggest you take as much of that as, um, as needed. Uh, without fail, every year somebody comes to look at their exam and says, man, I just didn't read that question right. Or I didn't read what it was asking. So take your time to read the questions. Uh, certainly, um, I'll be here when the exam's handed out. I'm gonna have some of my students here as well just to um, keep an eye on all of you. But um, certainly during the exam, if you read a question, you're not understanding what I'm asking for, you can raise your hand. I'll be happy to explain the question to you a different way. I'll be happy to help you just short of telling you the answer. So if you think that you're gonna trick me into telling, me that, telling you the answer, that's probably not gonna happen. But if you need some clarification on what the question's asking, I can certainly do that. Because the questions aren't designed to be tricky. They're just designed to test how well you learn the material. Okay, so any questions about that? All right, uh, one other thing related to the remotes. I, I've been pretty lenient up to this point in the sense that uh, several of you every class period have been coming up after class saying, or before class and said, hey, I forgot my remote, I, I left it in my car. So I've been lenient up until this point and today will be the end of that. So um, basically, if you didn't bring your remote today, you can get a pass today. From this point forward, you're on your own. You didn't bring your remote, that's your problem, not mine. So um, that's, it's up to you to make sure you get that here. And uh, Okay, first up, uh, a subject has just completed a 20-week aerobic training program. Which of the following measures would provide the best index of their potential improvement? A, measure lactate in the expired air. B, test the subjects by carbonate threshold. C, collect a muscle biopsy and measure creatine kinase activity. D, measure the amount of time required to overcome the oxygen deficit. All right, very good. So most of you did get the correct answer there. So let me go through the other answers and explain to you why those are not correct. So first, A, measure lactate in the expired air. There's never lactate in the expired air. Okay, uh, when we talked about lactic acid, uh, I talked about being split into two things. Acid, which is buffered in the bicarbonate system, turned into carbon dioxide, and that is exhaled in expired air. The lactate molecule itself goes back to the liver to be processed back into glucose via gluconeogenesis. The uh, choice B, test the subject's bicarbonate threshold. Um, essentially, I just made that up. Um, we talked about lactate threshold, but uh, we never talked about the bicarbonate threshold because there isn't such a thing. Um, C is collect a muscle biopsy and measure creatine kinase. While collecting a muscle biopsy may be one way to measure improvement in a training program, the thing you would want to measure would not be creatine kinase. 
So creatine kinase is the enzyme associated with the ATP PC system. And you really wouldn't expect that system to change much in response to a 20-week aerobic training program. If you're going to measure an enzyme, you might measure something like isocitrate dehydrogenase, which is in the TCA cycle. And the fourth choice, measure the amount of time required to overcome the oxygen deficit. The uh, deficit is the period of time right at the beginning of exercise. And I even think I have a slide that shows that uh, the response time to the initiation of exercise is improved in a trained individual. All right, next, uh, most of the carbohydrate used as substrate during short duration activity being less than 45 minutes in duration and high intensity, approximately 70% of maximal effort comes from A, muscle glycogen, B, blood glucose, C, liver glycogen, D, free fatty acids. Okay, um, so most of you got that correct. So let's go through what the other answers were and why those were not correct. First off, uh, option D, free fatty acids. Well, if you look at that intensity of exercise, that intensity of exercise is above the crossover point. And since it's above the crossover point, you couldn't use free fatty acids to make ATP even if you wanted to. So that's not an option. And then B, the reason that B and C aren't the option is almost the exact same thing. When you look at this duration of exercise, uh, regardless of the intensity, um, you tend to have the muscle relying on things that are in the muscle, which means that really it's not going to have access to the glycogen, which is stored in the liver, and it's really not going to have access to the glucose, which is stored in the, in the, blood, in the bloodstream. And one of the key reasons why it would not use those sources, hello? Um, one of the key reasons it would not use those sources is because essentially if you look at the amount of time it takes to make ATP from glucose versus the amount of time that it takes ATP to be made from glycogen, the, it takes much, much longer to make ATP from glucose. So it's a much slower process, and that would require a lower intensity of exercise and or a longer duration of exercise. So essentially, that leaves you with only muscle glycogen as being the possible answer. All right, third, uh, energy to run a maximal 400-meter race, i.e. Uh, duration of 50 to 60 seconds, comes from A, aerobic metabolism exclusively, B, 70% aerobic, 30% anaerobic, C, 30% aerobic, 70% anaerobic, or D, the ATP PC system exclusively? Um, so, all right, so the answer was 30% uh, aerobic and 70% anaerobic. Let me explain to you why the other ones are not the case. Okay, so first of all, option A, well, that intensity of exercise is not an intensity of exercise that would maximally elicit uh, energy being produced by the aerobic systems. So option A is not the choice. Uh, however, during even this duration of exercise, you can have some, some activation of aerobic systems, but they're not the primary source of ATP production. So that basically rules out option B, because while option B does suggest there's some aerobic metabolism going on, it's suggesting that's the predominant source of ATP production, and uh, we know that wouldn't be the case. For option D, the ATP PC system exclusively, uh, that's not the answer because the duration's too long. So the maximal duration of the ATP PC system is only about um, 10 to 15 seconds tops. And this duration's 50 to 60 seconds. And once you rule out those three, all you're left with is this third choice where 
the most of the energy is coming from anaerobic systems and there is some energy coming from aerobic system. So one thing I can say is that uh, if you got those three answers, if you got those three questions correct, and or you got most of those questions correct, you're probably on the right road as to where you need to be in terms of learning the material. Um, if you got those questions correct and you were randomly guessing, you're probably not on the right road to where you need to be. And if you miss those questions, you're also not on the right road to where you need to be. But uh, definitely between now and next Tuesday, hopefully with some, some more studying on your own, you can get to where you need to be. And, you know, don't, like I said, I've said this several times, don't uh, forget to take advantage of um, me as a resource to help you understand the material. So sometimes I can explain the material in a way that hopefully will make it less confusing for you. Um, but the only way that I know that you need help is if you ask me. If you don't ask me, then um, I'm not going to know that you need help. All right, so with that said, uh, we'll move into today's topic, uh, exercise endocrinology. And then when we get to the end of the class, we'll have uh, some more questions to go through. So overview of what we're going to talk about. Um, we're just going to focus on some specific subgroups of hormones today. And we're going to focus on hormones that mediate the following actions. So we're going to look at hormones that are associated with glucose metabolism and the regulation of that. We're going to look at hormones that are associated with uh, fat metabolism. And we're going to look at hormones that are associated with the regulation of blood plasma. All right, so starting now with uh, regulation of blood glucose metabolism, that's what that should say on the top. And this is controlled by five specific hormones. The first hormone you've probably all heard of before is insulin. That's the predominant controller of glucose metabolism in the resting state. It's also the primary hormone that gets disrupted with the progression and development of diabetes. Second hormone is called glucagon. A third hormone is epinephrine. A fourth is norepinephrine. And a fifth is cortisol. So you may have all at least heard of cortisol now because there's this advertisement that is just being beat to death on TV for a cortislim. You can take it and it disrupts cortisol because cortisol is what makes you get fat, not the fact that you eat at McDonald's every day of the week. Uh, yeah, so yeah, so if anytime those, those, you see those things on TV, I can't just help not laughing because it's always the same thing. You can lose weight without the hassles of diet and exercise. And then at the end, it'll say used in conjunction with diet and exercise really fast. Um, but um, yeah, so cortisol has been brought up a, a lot lately as it relates to uh, establishment of body fat stores. And it does play a role in glucose metabolism. The other two above it, epinephrine, norepinephrine, uh, those are also uh, the other names for adrenaline and noradrenaline, which are the two fight or flight hormones, which uh, basically mediate a variety of the body's stress type responses. And essentially, when you look at uh, blood glucose metabolism during exercise, it's really affected by three factors. It's affected by one, muscle uptake of glucose. So as you exercise, how much glucose is your muscle taking in? 
affected secondly by the release of glucose from the liver. So when you start exercising, the liver breaks down glycogen, it releases those glucose stores into the bloodstream, and then that can serve to elevate blood glucose levels. And a third factor is the dietary intake of glucose. So obviously, if you're eating a high-carbohydrate diet, you're going to tend to have elevated blood glucose levels uh, during, in certain states as opposed to if you ate a diet devoid of carbohydrate. All right, so if we go through and we look at each of these hormones in a little bit more detail describing exactly what its role is, the first is insulin. And the primary secretion site for insulin is the pancreas and uh, more specifically the beta cells of the pancreas. Uh, the pancreas is a unique gland in the sense that it has uh, what we call endocrine portions and exocrine portions. The, what we're going to focus primarily on today is the endocrine portions that uh, make up part of the endocrine system, but it also plays a role in uh, the digestive process. A second uh, or an action of insulin is uh, glucose uptake by the muscle at rest. And when you look at the exercise response, essentially exercise inhibits the release of insulin. So if you're exercising really hard and you uh, eat something that has a high glycemic index, you'll get no release of insulin. And the reason that is is because the, the exercise response mediates glucose uptake, but that uptake is independent of insulin. So there's no insulin response required. And often when you look at the treatment of diabetes, uh, exercise is a very effective treatment to minimize how much insulin a, a, at least a type 1 diabetic has to have because they can use exercise to mediate glucose uptake. In response to chronic exercise training, there's really no change in insulin levels. Uh, the thing that's uh, really becoming a major epidemic right now is the, um, the numbers of individuals being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes is pretty much off the chart. And uh, the situation gets even worse because if you persist in a state of type 2 diabetes long enough, the pancreas will just quit making insulin. And then you'll effectively be a type 1 diabetic and you'll have to inject yourself after every meal with insulin for the rest of your life all day long. And if you don't do that, you'll essentially start to have all the symptoms of diabetes and uh, can result in death. Um, maybe. Uh, I don't, I'm not really from, very familiar with chromium as its effects are associated with uh, insulin and its action. But um, being a diabetic and being an athlete is a very kind of a dangerous combination uh, that requires lots and lots and lots of dedication to carefully managing blood glucose levels. Um, so, And the interesting thing is especially type 1 diabetes, um, actually most people have type 1 diabetes, they don't necessarily have it they're from birth. Sometimes they have it from birth, and sometimes they find out later on. So the latest one, the latest pr prominent athlete that I can think of that was diagnosed with type one diabetes was uh, Jay Cutler, who's the quarterback for the Broncos. And last year he was describing symptoms of lef being lethargic and not feeling like he had strength to get through workouts, losing lots of weight, and uh, they basically found out he's a type one diabetic. And he's actually on an insulin pump. So when he's not playing, he has, a, he has a thing that he wears on his side. And it's a device that tracks his blood glucose level and injects insulin 
as needed. Uh, other people don't do it that way. And then obviously during the actual competition, I think every time he comes out, they check his blood glucose, and if they need to, they inject an appropriate amount of insulin. So um, certainly it takes some very good uh, management to, to work with that type of condition. All right, so this graph is meant to demonstrate um, insulin blood glucose responses and how they relate to exercise. And on the y-axis, we have the response, and on the x-axis, we have 30, 60, or 90 minutes of duration. And when you look at blood glucose levels during this type of activity, for instance, an activity that lasted 90 minutes in duration, you really don't tend to see a lot of change in blood glucose levels. And one of the reasons is, is because there's not really a lot of uptake of glucose during that initial parts of exercise. And then after 60 minutes of exercise, when there is uptake of glucose, you have a, a subsequent release of glucose from the liver and the liver glycogen stores, which facilitates blood glucose levels being maintained at or near uh, resting levels. If you look at the insulin response to this uh, to exercise, it, this response is consistent with what I showed on the last slide. So it's high before exercise, and then as you exercise, these levels drop off dramatically. The uh, second hormone that mediates blood glucose is glucagon. And uh, glucagon is also secreted by the pancreas, except it comes from the endocrine cell called an alpha cell. And its key action is to cause liver glycogen breakdown and glu subsequent glucose release to the bloodstream. What we know about glucagon is it's, uh, especially during aerobic exercise, it's positively correlated to exercise intensity, which essentially means the harder you exercise, the higher the intensity, the greater the release of glucagon you'll get. Also, if you looked at somebody completing fixed intensity exercise, so say you brought somebody in the lab and you had them run at 50% of their max effort and that you had them do that for an hour and a half to two hours, you would see a pretty substantial release of glucagon near the end of that type of activity. One of the key effects of training and the reason that aerobic training is effective is that it causes a reduction in glucagon at a given intensity compared to an untrained individual. All right, so what that would mean, to give you an idea how that would work is you have someone come in, they've never done any exercise training, you do a VO2 max test on them, you have them do a fixed amount of exercise at say 60-70% of their max effort, take a blood sample, you measure glucagon levels. You have the person come back after a period of training and do the exact same type of test again at the same percentage of VO2 max, and what you'll find is a reduction in glucagon in the plasma. And that's because one of the key effects that you get from training is the body shifts that crossover point between carbohydrate and fat to the right, meaning that you can exercise at a higher intensity using fat to make ATP before you rely on glucose. And this response is consistent with that adaptation. A thir uh, third and fourth uh, hormones are epinephrine and norepinephrine. And the key secretion sites for epinephrine and norepinephrine are the adrenal medulla and the sympathetic nervous system. So the adrenal medulla, that's in the kidneys, and the sympathetic nervous system is a branch of the autonomic nervous system. 
which is also known as the automatic nervous system. And it's the branch that controls heart rate and breathing and those types of responses. So certainly when you, if you exercise regularly, you appreciate the fact that when you start exercising, you don't have to think about increasing your heart rate. You don't have to think about increasing your breathing rate and consciously do it. It just does it automatically. That's what the system does. The system's activated when uh, you start exercising. It mediates the increase in those responses to meet the demands of your body. Its key action with respect to blood glucose metabolism is to work uh, in concert with glucagon. And the exercise response is such that it's positively correlated to exercise intensity. With the disclaimer that the exercise intensity has to exceed somewhere between 50 and 75% of max effort. When you look at the chronic training response or chronic exercise response, it's very similar to what we saw with glucagon. At a given intensity after exercise, you'll have a suppressed release of epinephrine and norepinephrine. And mostly that's related to the fact that uh, the body's changing what it's using to make ATP at that intensity of exercise. But also the, through training, there's some differences in how the, the body physically responds to exercise. So if you bring somebody in that does not exercise on a regular basis and has not for some period of time, and you say, okay, we're gonna test you, and then you're going to ride for an hour at 80% of your maximal effort. That's gonna be a very miserable hour. They can probably make it, but it's gonna be a very, very miserable hour, and it's not gonna be very comfortable. But if you take someone who trains at that level all the time, and you ask them to do the exact same type of exercise, you get a very different response. The uh, fifth one we mentioned was cortisol. And cortisol is also released from uh, the adrenal gland, the kidney, specifically the adrenal cortex. And its action is to increase protein catabolism and to increase blood amino acids for gluconeogenesis. So if you're exercising and you take a blood sample and you get some massive releases of cortisol, that's a bad sign because that means your body's trying to use protein to make ATP and that's not really a very desirable effect. Cortisol is also positively correlated to exercise intensity uh, with the disclaimer that the exercise intensity has to exceed 80% of maximal effort. So I used 80% just a moment ago as an example. Uh, someone exercising 80% of maximal effort, that's a pretty strenuous amount of exercise. And if you have them truly set to 80% of max effort, they will be lucky to exercise for an hour, especially if they're not well-trained or even if they're recreationally trained. Um, in some, of, some studies we've done in the past with some of our elite cyclists, we can usually get them to ride two or sometimes three hours at this intensity. And uh, usually people say, well, I don't understand. If you said it's really painful, and especially the longer you go, the harder it gets, how do you encourage people to keep going? And usually what we do in those types of studies is we tell the, the subject, we say, okay, here's how it works. You, we want you to ride for at least an hour. You ride for an hour, we're going to pay you $200 cash. 
for every 10 minutes that you ride past an hour, we're going to pay you an additional $20. And uh, you know, like I said, you'll be surprised how much longer they'll ride. Um, the more money that's associated with the minutes, the, more, the longer they'll ride. Uh, we've even had a few people ride in excess of five hours at 80% and had to just cut them off. Because, um, I mean, it was pretty obvious they were in a lot of pain. Um, in this particular study, we were tracking blood lactate levels during the ride. And uh, pretty much for an, a solid hour, their blood lactate levels were so high, I don't really understand how they were tolerating the, the burning they must have been feeling in their muscles. But um, you never can underestimate the human will to keep going or get paid. Um, the... Uh, in response to chronic exercise training, uh, actually what you'll see is a slight and probably not important increase in cortisol at a given exercise intensity. All right, so if we look now at these last four hormones we just talked about, so if we look at the... Um, if we look at epinephrine, norepinephrine, glucagon, and cortisol, if we look at the same sort of graph we looked at with insulin, you have the response on the y-axis and then time, uh, exercise time on the x-axis. If you look at glucagon levels, this is pretty much what uh, glucagon would do. If you had somebody come in and they're doing a fixed intensity exercise, you would see that um, probably within the first 15 minutes of exercise, you'd have an elevation of glucagon. And then that elevation would be sustained for the duration of the activity. Uh, if you look at cortisol, there's uh, some different responses of cortisol. To get a sustained activation of cortisol, you have to exercise greater than 80% of your max. But what you tend to see with cortisol levels is immediately after you start exercising, you usually have a spike in cortisol, and then that level continue, just basically gradually de de decreases back to resting levels. So at any given time, even though the intensity doesn't exceed 80%, you can still have some rise in cortisol. But to get the most substantial rises in cortisol, you have to exceed 80% of maximal effort. And then if you look at the epinephrine, norepinephrine response, this is pretty much what they look like. The, uh, while these hormones, they mediate some important actions which are definitely not under your automatic control. So while you're exercising, you can't just think to yourself, hmm, I think I'm going to start metabolizing fat right now. Or, okay, I, I think I'm ready for glucose right now. You do, it doesn't work that way. So you can't, those things are not under your conscious control. But interestingly enough, depending on what feedback information you give the individual that's exercising, you can alter the way these things are released. Um, and largely, uh, norepinephrine, epinephrine, and cortisol, those are the stress hormones. So if somebody perceives that uh, the stress is being lessened in some way, they'll actually, their body will actually decrease the release of these hormones. So there's definitely a psychological component to it. A really good example is we did a study a couple of years ago, and it was in response to a paper we had published before that. And essentially, we had always argued that knowing... Whether or not, during exercise, knowing whether or not you're drinking a carbohydrate drink had no effect on uh, this particular parameter that we were measuring. We'd maintain that without any support for it. So we did a study in which we took people and 
we had them do one of two conditions. Either they did a trial where they were given a carbohydrate drink and we told them when we handed them the drink, this drink is going to make your exercise easier. Or we gave them uh, water, which was essentially flavored and colored to look exactly like Gatorade, identical in taste because they designed it for us. And we gave that to them and told them the exact same thing. And uh, what you see is um, whether we gave them when you gave them the actual carbohydrate drink, you got a lessened response. And then when you gave them the water where you told them it was a carbohydrate drink, you got a lessened response, but it wasn't as, as much as when they got the actual carbohydrate drink, which suggests that there's some kind of conscious control going on in terms of how these are mediated during exercise. And again, the effort of all three of, or all four of these hormones is to maintain blood glucose levels at or near resting levels. You real, and this is really important is to maintain them at or near resting levels. And really the key reason that's important is when you look at the brain and the central nervous system, they really only make ATP using glucose. So if you drop blood glucose levels, your body will send out a signal to stop exercising because essentially it's a protective mechanism to maintain energy supply to the brain's central nervous system. All right, so that's the regulation of blood glucose metabolism. Uh, second uh, process is the regulation of fat metabolism during exercise. And fat metabolism is also controlled by a group of five hormones. The first being cortisol, the second being epinephrine, the third being norepinephrine, the fourth being growth hormone. Oops. Or, oops, sorry about that. Excuse me, four hormones cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and growth hormone. The first three we've already talked about with respect to blood glucose metabolism. But now we're going to look at some other roles that those exact same hormones have, and these roles medi are mediated via the processes of fat metabolism. So when do you need fat metabolism? Well, you essentially need fat metabolism when exercise depletes glycogen stores. And really, that's uh, only during very long-duration types of activities. So if you look at a lean individual who's in a fasted state, they can probably store somewhere between four and 5,000 kilocalories as muscle glycogen. And if they were doing some exercise that was expending uh, five to 600 kilocalories per hour, you could probably exercise for seven or eight hours at that level. Um, and then anything beyond that would alter the way the body's making ATP. A second reason when you might need fat metabolism is when diet depletes glycogen stores. And there's really two uh, cases when this occurs. Uh, anytime you're, you're in the fasted state, uh, so if you're sitting in the room here and you haven't eaten or drinking anything that has caloric content in it in the last three hours, congratulations, you're in a fasted state. And that means that your body is probably going to be using predominantly fat metabolism to provide ATP, but also to uh, mediate blood glucose levels. 
The other way that this might be important is if you were doing some sort of diet manipulation that consisted of low, a low-carbohydrate diet. And this is the principle that uh, essentially the, the Atkins diet resides around is the fact that um, if you consume a diet which is devoid of carbohydrates, you'll force the body to use fat to uh, make ATP and thus uh, cause fat weight to be lost. And it's actually not quite that easy because it's pretty difficult to eat a, a diet which is devoid of carbohydrates. Um, it just, as I suggested last time, there's not a lot of options you have that don't have some sort of carbohydrate in them. All right, so if we look at cortisol again, and again, this is looking at cortisol with re respect to fat metabolism, same secretion site, adrenal cortex. Uh, in this case, in terms of fat metabolism, the key effect that it mediates is to increase liver gluconeogenesis and to increase blood-free fatty acid levels. So increase liver gluconeogenesis. That means increase the rate at which the liver converts lactate and amino acids back to glucose. And two, increasing the release of free fatty acids into the bloodstream with the hope that the body will selectively use those. Yeah, so uh, I think I maybe at least mentioned it before is that, and I think I mentioned it when I was talking about the processing of lactic acid. Uh, when you have lactic acid molecule, you have to get rid of both parts of it, the lactate, lactate part and the acid part. The bicarbonate system takes care of the acid part. The gluconeogenesis in the liver takes care of the lactate part. And gluconeogenesis is essentially glycolysis backwards. So you start with lactate and you end up with glucose. The other thing you can start with is you can start with uh, the what are referred to as a carbon skeleton of, of an amino acid. And as you saw uh, when we talked about cortisol just a moment ago, cortisol res results in the breakdown of amino acids and protein catabolism, which increases the supply of those amino acid skeletons to the liver. And then the liver just takes those two things and it makes them into glucose. So the net effect is you get more glucose being released from the liver. Well, the this in part the spike is because of the response that I've listed up here. Uh, it plays a role in mediating fat metabolism. So you're going to see the highest levels of it under two circumstances: when the exercise is very stressful, and when the exercise is very stressful, the stimulus essentially for the stressfulness of the exercise is not having a sufficient supply of glucose. So you'll have the release of cortisol in an attempt to provide more glucose. In this aspect, as it relates to fat metabolism, the stimulus is different. So you're starting off with low intensity exercise. Low intensity exercise uh, can be basically ATP for that can be provided by fat metabolism and cortisol in that sense facilitates fat metabolism during low intensity of exercise. And then once you basically increase to an intensity where you get to that crossover point, that's where cortisol basically starts tapering off 
and it's not going to increase again until you get a, to a point where there isn't enough glucose. And that's going to have to be exercised at or above 80% of max effort for an extended period of time. That makes sense? All right, so positively correlated to exercise intensity, but only acts during the first 30 to 45 minutes. And again, that's largely dependent on what the exercise is that's being done. And similar to what we talked about with glucose metabolism, the training response is almost exactly the same. It's not really changed in response to exercise training. And there may be a slight increase with an increase in, exercise, with an, uh, increase in training. And actually, the slight increase would be a beneficial effect in this case because the effect would trigger more fat metabolism at lower intensities of exercise. And the, the only objective with fat metabolism is to spare muscle glycogen. So really not for m most individuals, but if you're looking at somebody doing extremely long durations of exercise, you have to be very concerned about how much muscle glycogen the body can store. And you have to be very concerned about doing whatever you can to protect that muscle glycogen. So I think some of the numbers I said before is muscle glycogen in a lean individual can range anywhere from four to 5,000 kilocalories. And that's compared to uh, adipose tissue stores, which could have in excess of 75,000 kilocalories of energy. And that's in a lean individual. So you could exercise for a really, really, really long period of time using only fat metabolism to provide ATP. So if we look at epinephrine and norepinephrine, same secretion sites, adrenal medulla, the kidney, and uh, the sympathetic nervous system. The action here is a little bit different because we're not talking about blood glucose metabolism. So their key action is to activate hormone-sensitive lipase and to work with glucagon. So hormone-sensitive lipase is exactly what it suggests that it is. It is a lipase, which is, lipase is an enzyme which breaks down fatty, or breaks down triglycerides, and then it's sensitive to other hormones, in this case, uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine. You get the same exercise response with, um, as you did with blood glucose metabolism. So as you start to exercise, it's the release of epinephrine and norepinephrine are positively correlated to exercise intensity. And uh, mostly when the exercise intensity exceeds 50 to 75% of maximal effort. And the chronic response is similar such that um, in response to training, it's decreased at a given intensity of exercise. All right, number four for fat metabolism is growth hormone. All right, so number four is growth hormone. And the primary secretion site for growth hormone is the anterior pituitary gland. And its key action with respect to fat metabolism is that it maintains cortisol-induced activation of hormone-sensitive lipase. And it's positively correlated to exercise intensity, meaning the harder you exercise, the greater the release of this hormone you will have. And the response to exercise training is that at a given intensity of exercise, 
the cortisol or the growth hormone concentration tends to be decreased. Um, certainly for all these hormones, uh, just I guess the disclaimer is they all have lots of actions that they mediate. We're just focusing in on a few of those actions that relate to exercise responses for the purposes of this class. All right, so if we look at uh, the response now for these, in, in, or these hormones as they relate to fat metabolism, same response graph here, so response on the y-axis and duration on the x-axis. And if you look at cortisol, if you were completing a type of exercise which uh, is essentially below or at the crossover point, you'll see... Uh, an increase in cortisol release and then a gradual decrease in cortisol release. And uh, that cortisol release, actually, if you looked at the fat utilization at those different points, it, it lines up really well with fat utilization. If you look at epinephrine and norepinephrine, it's essentially the same type of response which we saw before. So initially it's pretty low, and then as the uh, stress of exercise increases, there's a gradual increase in both epinephrine and norepinephrine. And the fourth response is growth hormone. And growth hormone is the same type of thing. So gradually or initially it's pretty low and then as the stress of exercise increases it's also increased. And obviously the, the key role of all these hormones is to mediate how the body uses carbohydrate and fat during exercise. And it, certainly these hormones play active roles in both types of uh, metabolism. Okay. Any questions about this? They just play a role in fat and mediating fat and carbohydrate metabolism during exercise. The other thing, if you laid a line over the top of this that showed uh, blood-free fatty acid levels, this is what you would expect to see of blood-free fatty acid levels. Uh, initially, you might see a slight decrease with the onset of exercise, and then as exercise progresses, you would have an increase in blood-free fatty acid levels. And the key reason for that is as you exercise, the longer you exercise, the body starts to run out of muscle glycogen. And as it runs out of muscle glycogen, it has to prepare to use alternate sources of energy. And one of those alternate sources is fatty acids. Also, so con consistent with the increase in free fatty acid concentration, you would also expect to see a drop in muscle glycogen stores. And it's a, essentially an, an either or condition. So if you're exercising, your muscle glycogen stores will be decreasing. There's not really a lot you can do to stop that. And the lower they go, the higher free fatty acid levels in the blood will go. The third response during exercise... Yep, sorry. Well, blood glucose can always... Uh, it can always rise. It can always rise at any point based on predominantly release of glucose from the liver. 
or if you drank something that had a high glucose content, that could boost up your glucose. But during exercise, glycogen gets used faster than it can be replaced. So the process of making new glycogen is actually a very slow process, and it takes a long period of time to do that. And effectively, you're using it probably 10 or 20 times as fast as it's being made. So yeah, there is some being made, but it's not nearly enough to offset what you're using. All right, the third response is the regulation of blood plasma levels. And it's controlled by a set of hormones. I think I messed this slide up too because I don't think it's five here. Um, the um, first is the aldosterone and the renin-angiotensin pathway. So it's a combination of a couple of hormones and uh, secondary messengers there. A second is antidiuretic hormone, or ADH. Yes, so you can X the five and put two. Um, it's kind of like five, except it's not. Um, all right, so, the, so what do they actually do with respect to maintenance of blood and blood plasma? One, they maintain blood supply to active tissues. Uh, hopefully by now it's really obvious why that's important during exercise. Especially if, you're, if your exercise is aerobic in nature, you need a constant stream of oxygen coming into the muscle cell. If you don't have a constant stream of oxygen going in, uh, that's going to be bad. A second is to provide fluid for the production of sweat. So pretty much all of the liquids that your body produces, sweat, uh, the fluid that's inside your eyeball, your tears, those are all produced from blood plasma. So the body filters the blood plasma, it leaves some things behind, and then it uses the liquid part of the blood to make sweat. A third effect is to increase oxygen carrying capacity. So if you alter, i.e. increase the amount of uh, blood volume you have, you effectively increase your oxygen carrying capacity. Whereas if you drop your blood volume, you decrease your oxygen carrying capacity. Is that why a lot of um, athletes do the blood doping? They do the transfusion in order to increase their uh, cell blood? Well, the objective is to increase the red cell concentration. Because if you increase red cell concentration, that increases oxygen carrying capacity. And assuming that your, your body is trained in such a way that it could use that extra oxygen, yes, it would increase performance. Um, that's the same reason that people use it abuse erythropoietin or EPO because EPO is a cancer treatment drug that uh, basically causes rapid increases in red blood cell production. Um, and there's other, I mean, there's other means that are used to, to do blood doping, but uh, blood doping is really, really dangerous uh, for the cardiovascular system because if you take a volume of blood and you put more red cells in it, it increases the viscosity of the blood. So you're spacing out right now and you're thinking, God, what's he talking about viscosity? That's what's on the oil commercials. Um, viscosity means thickness. So it increases the thickness of the blood. And uh, you can think of it as the difference between your heart pumping blood that's the consistency of uh, like salad dressing 
to pumping something into the consistency of like chocolate sauce. And really what that means is the, the, the heart has to work really hard to pump that blood. And it puts a lot of undue stress on the heart. And one of the real problems with um, repeated and continuous blood doping is uh, the risk of heart attack and other cardiovascular disorders. Uh, it's pretty common, actually, it's been reported in a number of cases in the literature that people that have done that for long periods of time, they'll, have a, they'll be out exercising one day and they'll split their aorta. Okay, that's bad. Really, really bad. Um, if you're not near a medical facility, um, you can think imminent death because that's exactly what will happen if you take out your aorta because that means that if your heart's pumping really hard, uh, the blood won't be pumping to your body. It'll just be pumping into your body. And it can, your body can't use it that way. All right, so if we look at these hormone pathways as they mediate these responses, the first is aldosterone. And the primary secretion site for aldosterone is the adrenal cortex, uh, so sim similar location as cortisol. The key action is to increase sodium and water reabsorption in the kidneys. Uh, so if you're not, if you haven't memorized renal physiology lately, I'm not going to go over renal physiology. Don't panic. Um, no, uh, but the way that the the way that the kidneys work is blood comes into your kidneys, and your body deposits all of the liquid from the blood into the urine collection ducts, and then the body goes back and it pulls out the things that it needs. So if you have high concentrations of aldosterone present, that's going to cause sodium to be taken back up from the kidney into the bloodstream, and anytime you take up sodium, water always follows sodium. Uh, another good example of the fact that water always follows sodium is if you eat something that's really salty, you usually crave, you usually have a sensation that you're craving water as a liquid of some sorts. Uh, and that's why, because sodium triggers those kinds of responses. During exercise, aldosterone is positively correlated with the changes in plasma volume. meaning that as plasma volume decreases, aldosterone increases. And if you look at its response to chronic training, there's really no change. So it's really not affected by exercise training, it's just affected by plasma volume changes that occur during the exercise response. The signal for aldosterone release is as follows. The kidneys sense a drop in blood pressure, which is due to a decrease in blood in plasma volume. And one thing your body will fight very hard to do is maintain blood pressure. Because if you disrupt blood pressure, you're di disrupting blood flow, which means now you're not getting oxygen to the tissues. This will cause the kidneys to release a substance called renin. Renin is then transformed via two reactions into something referred to as angiotensin 1 and then into angiotensin 2. The word angiotensin literally translates to uh, blood pressure or vessel pressure. Uh, tensin refers to pressure and angio refers to vessel, in this case blood vessel, so blood pressure. Angiotensin II then stimulates aldosterone release from the adrenal cortex. Sorry. 
Um, and then really after that, the lat once you have aldosterone in the bloodstream, then you get its effect. It stimulates the kidneys to reabsorb sodium, which causes reabsorption of water, which causes blood plasma to return to normal levels. So that's aldosterone. The second hormone is antidiuretic hormone, or ADH. The primary secretion site for ADH is the posterior pituitary gland. Uh, just a distinction that may or may not even matter is that the, all of the hormones that are released from the posterior pituitary gland are not made in the posterior pituitary gland. So this hormone is actually produced in the hypothalamus, and then it's stored in the posterior pituitary gland. When we talked about growth hormone, growth hormone is produced in the anterior pituitary gland. It's stored there, and it's released from there. So a slightly difference in how, what its actual source is. The key action is to increase sodium reabsorption and water reabsorption in the kidneys. And a very similar action to that of aldosterone. The exercise response is such that it's positively correlated to an increase in blood concentration. And more specifically, what we refer to as hemoconcentration. And uh, the idea here is that the blood is a solution, which means that it's composed of a solvent and a solute. And the solvent is water, and the solute is everything else. So everything else, meaning plasma proteins, red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, um, glucose, fatty acids, and anything else you can think of that would be dissolved in their electrolytes. And the amount of the solutes never changes. But if you're exercising really hard, and especially in a hot environment, you would have a lot of sweating going on, which would cause the amount of solvent you have to decrease. And if you essentially have less solvent and the same amount of solute, that uh, solution is now concentrated. The chronic exercise response is such that uh, ADH release is decreased at a given intensity compared to the untrained individual. So if we look at how blood plasma is maintained, uh, we have the response again on the y-axis and time on the exercise or on the x-axis. If you weren't consuming any supplemental fluid during exercise, you would see a um, gradual decline in plasma volume as a result of exercise and the sweating response that's needed to maintain body temperature. And in most cases, in extreme cases, you could see a plasma volume drop by as much as 15%. And once you drop plasma by about 15%, that starts to affect performance because it's going to start, start to alter the ability of the body to deliver uh, the things that it needs to the muscle, take away the things that it does not, and more importantly, maintain uh, body temperature. And also as exercise progressed and the, more importantly, the plasma volume dropped, you would expect to see a increased and pronounced increased release of aldosterone. 
And in a similar uh, fashion, you would see similar increases in antidiuretic hormone as well. Again, directly related to the change in, pl in plasma volume that you experienced. Okay, so we'll, we'll finish off with a couple questions here and then we'll call it a day. All right, so during exercise in the fasted state, insulin would tend to A, increase, B, decrease, C, decrease, then increase, or D, none of these responses. During exercise, insulin has nothing to do with glucose metabolism, period. So the answer should have been decrease. All right, so which of the following hormone or hormones regulate blood glucose during exercise? Okay, so if you were paying attention on the last slide, uh, the last question was that I just said insulin does not have anything to do with blood glucose during exercise. So if you put B, shame on you. If you put E, shame on you as well because that's 60 of you. Basically, if you just looked at the previous question, would have gotten that right. Uh, the answer is C uh, or D, some of these, because both cortisol and glucagon are responsible for that action. Okay, if I want to do well on exam one, then I should A, panic, B, start studying now, C, post questions that I have in the discussion forum, D, attend the informal exam review session. Okay, so at least most people are going to attempt to prepare for the exam, but again, you know, like, I, like I've said several times today, please take advantage of all the resources that you have to prepare. And I'll post an announcement on WebCT about the review thing we'll do on Thursday. Thanks.